Welcome to Le Flaneur Politique with Dr. Michael DePercy. Don't forget to check out the show notes at politicalscience.com.au. Professor John Wanner has studied politics, policy and public administration since the 1970s. And during his academic career, he's published over 50 books and supervised over 50 research students. He's the inaugural Sir John Bunting Chair in Public Administration at the Australia and New Zealand School of Government based at the Australian National University. He is a Fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia, National Fellow of the Institute of Public Administration Australia, and he was Editor of the Australian Journal of Public Administration for 20 years up until 2014. John's scholarly contribution is to be honoured with a Feshrift in September 2018, supported by ANSOG, the ANU and Wiley Publishing. In this podcast, I interview Professor Wanner and ask him to reflect on his career. The topics for your first shift are based on your scholarly work in the areas of Australian and Queensland politics, uh, public finance, budgeting and financial management, both in the Australian and international experiences. Uh, but it also covers public policy, public administration and working with practitioners. So this seems quite a broad uh, interest. And from my experience, many aspiring professors are being asked to specialise today. So where do you see your specialisation and how did that come about? And how do you actually manage to stay abreast of developments in all of these areas? Well, I always had a deep and abiding interest in history. Um, history was one of my favourite subjects at school, but also linking it with geography, with economics. Uh, we didn't get much civics when I was at school, but I um, gradually focused on that. As soon as I got to university, I enrolled in politics as one of the first uh, things I ever did along with history and, and multiple histories, um, and ended up graduating with, with a, a double major in, in political science. Uh, so I've always had that kind of background. In terms of interests, I have moved uh, considerably. I mean, I started off working on um, state government policymaking in areas to do with new cities, industrial relations, control of unions. Uh, I moved into a, a number of those areas very early on um, in... Um, one year when I was at Adelaide University, I was the only person who produced a book in the entire uh, department that year, and uh, this was a book on um, the regulation of South Australian unions, by, principally by Conservative and Labor governments, and how that pattern had changed over time. Um, later then, I moved into government business relations and did a lot of work in that area and, and public policy, drawing back on what, what I'd done previously. But then gradually I moved more into budgeting, public finance, financial relations, dimensions of federalism and things like that. But I've always had a long interest in what's happening in Australian politics and to, to some extent how Australian politics fits in with the kind of region, the regional world we're in. Is there one particular area that you would see as your specialty? I'd see my two specialties as being a broader coverage of Australian politics, uh, largely from a qualitative perspective. I'm not that much into quantitative and sometimes I think there's not that much that quantitative stuff can tell us that we can't always... Uh, some, you know, see by just, just looking and observing politics as it's happening. And the other one would be in areas of public finance, particularly on the government expenditure side. So on the uh, finance and budgeting, how did your interest in that happen? And, and uh, you moved into uh, the international uh, arena for budgeting and, and, and public finance. Um, what sort of experiences have you learnt from internationally, but also how did you get into this, uh, in, into this area? Well, two accidents really in terms of the budgeting. When I was uh, in South Australia as a postgraduate, I, I was working with some of the, the unions at the time and the South Australian Public Service Union was wanting to make a budget submission. They were new in those days, this is the uh, late 70s. And they approached me when I was at Adelaide University if I could help them to make a budget submission. Now, 
I didn't really know what that meant at the time they approached me. So it meant I had to go back and read four or five budgets. I had been reading budgets for the New Cities program. So I'd, I'd, I'd been looking at some Commonwealth and state budgets in terms of where money was going. But I hadn't really read a state budget at that point in time. So I had to read the budget. I had to go through the last three or four years, work out what the changes, what was happening, where there was scope. Uh, and how a union would put together a, a budget case for either more, more staff or more staff to front line and things like that. And we gradually put a budget submission together over a period of about a month. I put that on my CV when I arrived at uh, Griffith University. Peter Coldrake was involved in a collaborative uh, exercise looking at changes in state policy making and he got the short straw doing um, government budgeting. He knew not much about it and said, John, you had see, you had, you'd worked on a budget in South Australia, you can come and help me. So uh, I did most of the empirical work and then we wrote the chapter up together. And so those accidents kind of got me into that. Uh, then I framed a research uh, ARC proposal with John Forster and we were lucky enough to get that. That was in the mid-90s and around the same time I'd been meeting Rod Rhodes and he brought us into the... Uh, brought the, the Griffith people into the Hollow Crown project, and I did uh, international government budgeting in that, in that book. Um, and so that broadened me both into some national level budgeting. The, the ARC was Australia and Canada compared, and how their budget systems were similar and different, and what the consequences were. It was called the uh, efficacy of, of uh, public finance at the time, public financial management. And, um, and so I moved on there. From then, I've probably done about six books in the, in the area of international budgeting, mainly realising that because it's a highly complex world, you have to draw on national experts who know their own system, and often it's in a different language than English, of course, uh, and then draw them into a, like a, a common analytical frame so that we can have some comparative um, assessment uh, across, many, across many countries. And we've tried to pick countries big, small, presidential, parliamentary, ones that are performing well, ones that haven't performed as well. A number of the more senior participants in your FESHRIFT have commented on your ability to speak to both academic and practitioner audiences and how important your work in this space has been. Yet traditional researchers tend to focus on just the academic audience. So how important is it to engage with uh, practitioners and what inspired you to synergize this theory and practice in your work? And is the academic reward system causing trouble for the sort of research and engagement work that you favour? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I speak to three audiences, really, and I, I've uh, done that so deliberately. Uh, it's not accidental. Uh, I do talk to academics. I love going to seminars. I mean, one of the highlights of being an academic is, is inspiring lectures and inspiring seminars and just hearing how people approach the broad area of social science. The second group I, I speak to is practitioners, and I started from probably the late 70s, early 80s in that regard, and part of editing journals and things like that in that area, largely for a practitioner audience, because the Australian Journal of Public Administration is read by academics and is read by people doing university degrees, but its principal uh, subscription base is practitioner, and, and a lot of practitioners do read it. And the third group is, is media. I do a lot of media uh, conversations, because uh, I think it's a, a responsibility of political scientists to translate politics to you know, the community, to, to ordinary people, who may not be highly uh, informed politically. And one of our jobs is to translate what's happening and in, into their world so that they can understand and take part in democracy. The second part of the question was whether it, uh, whether it gets rewarded now in the current university system. Now, when I was uh, studying at university, they really wanted us to 
um, make presentations. I mean, I remember the year my first book came out, which I think is 80 or 81, the university radio station, 5UV, asked me to come along and speak to it in a half-hour program, and I was terrified. I'd never done any radio before. I'd really only spoken in, in class and in, in two groups, and often my two groups were five or six people. It wasn't, wasn't a large mass of, of 20 or 30, as it became later. Um, so I was terrified. When I got there, they sat me down, sat me in front of a microphone, and I didn't stop talking for 35 minutes, <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good experience. And so from then on, I, I really got, uh, picked up a lot of uh, media work. Having said that, there's, you, you get known, you get, you get a kind of a public reputation, but it's not always highly regarded in university. If you, if you contact the media office, they know you're a big player in the field and they know the journalists are chasing you all the time, either for backgrounding or for quotes or whatever. Um, but it's not necessarily, it won't get you promoted and it's not particularly uh, rewarded by the university. Practitioner-oriented work, I, I've struggled in the last 20 years to claim my space and say, look, I am going to talk to this group because this is a, a, a hugely important group who are running governments, working for governments, interacting with governments. There may be stakeholders uh, in governments. There are different levels in, in the government jurisdictions. Uh, that is a huge audience of you know, three million people or so that we're talking to, and then through them to the ordinary public who receive public policy. So I, I've always stressed that one of my jobs was to write things for a practitioner audience, and that, that, that was what I was paid to do. And particularly when Anzog came along, I, I jumped at the chance because Anzog opened a lot, of, lot more doors in terms of public sector collaboration with academia, and, um, and it meant that I was now paid actually to write for, for practitioners and, and drive their research agendas. During your career, you've witnessed a shift in the financial and power dynamics in the Australian federalism, uh, the end of protectionism, the introduction of market reforms, uh, but there's also been a corresponding move in public administration uh, from the bureaucratic system to new public management and now to what uh, Michael Howlett is referring to as new public governance. So to, to oversimplify these changes, we seem to have moved from a collective approach to policy to a more individualised approach with uh, the market and new public management approach and the reforms that were led by the federal government. But now with issues of trust in government and government's ability to steer the state, the, some ideas about things like co-production of policy uh, are, are coming about. And, and I just wondered if these are signalling a return to or at least some aspects of the collective approach. And I'd also like to ask, how would you describe the current trajectory of public administration in Australia? And what do you think are the key lessons from the reforms of these last 30 years? And is it possible to refer to international public administration trends at the moment? I, I think it's a, a very complex world um, in both the developed and the developing um, countries. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think there are... Uh, a lot of academics want to box up new public management is a global paradigm that Hood argued and he regretted it ever since and they tried to list six points. Well, you, if you look around the countries, you know, some will have two of the points, some will have three of the points, some might have eight, eight points, more, not six. So I, I'm not a, a big believer. I do think there are trends. I think there was a trend towards ma uh, moving from being more administrative to being more managerial. I think there was a trend to be uh, more um, visibly accountable in, in public administration, uh, but there are many counter trends. So while, while we've embraced markets, we've also regulated markets more. Um, while we've um, asked um, public servants to be more strategic, we've also uh, continued to underscore their formal accountabilities, which is what often limit how, how far they can be strategic or experimental or pioneering. So I think there's lots of conflicting trends. 
when we wrote the Hollow Crown book, which was looking at the hollowing out of the state, which was very much in vogue in, in academia, and you could find many academics who would go to conferences and say the states are all being hollowed out. When we looked empirically at five major developed nations there, we found very contradictory trends. In some areas, the state had relaxed controls and, and moved out of an area or vacated an area, and there was some hollowing out. In other areas, the state had developed its capacities and developed its strengths quite considerably, particularly in, in the area I was looking at in the budget process. There was a lot more top-down um, aggregate controls, a lot more fiscal discipline coming through the systems than there had previously been. And one of the main reasons for that was political will, but the other reason was IT and uh, the digitalization of, of government meant that they had instantaneous information and so could control much better by realising when things were, were getting awry or, um, or, or you know, becoming hard to manage. In one of your recent books edited with Andrew Podger, Sharpening the Sword of State, you looked at the delicate balance between the public interest in promoting change and capacity enhancement across the public service from an international perspective. To what extent have these reforms improved policy outcomes? Are the changes a result of learning from experience? But also, what can we learn from the international experience? And what does the future look like for capacity building in the public service? Well, I think we've changed. And remember, the sharpening the sword of state is uh, you know, sort of East Asia and um, Asia Pacific region. And the countries in that area have largely changed the way the public service uh, works. They're now having far less... Um, lower level officers. Um, some of them are moving away from a career service. A lot of them are, are um, moving beyond simple on-the-job training and to high-level training. So if you take Singapore, there is an enormous uh, emphasis on very high elite training, recruiting elites, ma uh, maintaining their elite position, and then using them very strategically in managing government for the benefit of Singaporeans. Um, you've seen similar trends in Hong Kong, you've seen similar trends in Taiwan, you've seen similar trends in China. So the way we train our executives uh, to take responsibility and to drive a lot of the public policy debates and to anticipate where we're going are hugely important. And the old ways of just putting an administrator in, you know, in a cardigan and in shorts and, and, and just hoping they'll learn on the job is not really suited to the kind of modern world where the job may not be working in, in an insular organization. It may be managing stakeholders, it may be, may be managing the media, it may be much more about managing uh, you know, the, the, the politics of, of dealing with ministers and the like. So it's a, it's a much more complicated job and public servants have been asked to be more strategic um, and are consultants. So I mean we've got a broader public sector putting ideas in here. It's a contestability of ideas, not a single uh, organisational structure of ideas. And many of the consultants are themselves former public servants who've, who've just gone outside the sector. So it, it's, a, it's a different world and we do, do need different ways of thinking about it. What was interesting about that book is countries saw the public interest in, in different ways. In some it was very much the public sector was going to lead. In others it was very much that the public sector had to be High integrity, so it's a big issue, say, in the Macau public sector, where gambling and, and uh, casinos and, and the, the flow of cash is a huge temptation, and they've got to be very careful about uh, the integrity of their, of their civil service. Uh, in Australia, it's often a case of moving away from a very ad hoc model of 
really non-training, just, just sort of a few in-house courses, to much more formalized training in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, to now much more customized training for executives where there's programs like ANZOG are offering and, and many others, which are really customized for particular audiences like new regulatory theory, things like that. You're often asked to comment on Australian politics in the news media, and you've authored several journal articles uh, and a number of edited books looking at the future of the Westminster uh, system of government. What is happening in Australian politics today that is making it so volatile? And is the evolving approach to policy and public administration keeping pace? Or are we at a critical juncture in terms of our political system? I don't think we're at a critical juncture. I think we are in a longer-term trend, which might be a malaise, it might be a debasement, it might be a polarisation of politics. And remember, although our politics is, is polarising between the major parties and also the, between the major parties and, and other new wannabe parties, like One Nation, um, it, on many issues, the politicians are, are fairly similar. I mean, we've got white slice-bread politicians on both sides, and they're fighting like mad and arguing as if there's massive dif ideological differences between their positions. Now, there are a few areas where uh, there are differences, maybe climate change, maybe industrial relations, but the vast majority of issues in public policy, both sides are reasonably um, um, similar on in, t in terms of fiscal management, in terms of management with the states, in terms of education policy, health policy. There's not a lot of difference between them. Yet we have this highly hyper-adversarial politics where if one side says one thing, the other side just says the, the other. Uh, the days when Australian politics were ideologically divided in the 30s, 40s, maybe th through to the 50s and 60s, are sort of gone. Um, will, we, will we improve? I think Westminster is, is like an empty shell and you can push lots of conventions through. And I think one of the things we have, have been doing is using that shell just as a conflictual kind of uh, political system, a parliamentary conflictual system, and not really used politics in a, in a kind of constructive, more positive way. So if you, if you compare Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand took a very brave decision to do, um, change their voting system, which basically meant they're never going to have majority governments or rarely have majority governments, and which means they've got to spend a lot more time on consensus building. Uh, that's not a, a feature largely of Australia. We've also got the dimensions of being a federal government that has a relatively small set of responsibilities but has lots of money and they want to get re-elected and they've got massive appetites to you know, trample all over the states or try to dictate to states what they should be doing. And the states which, who've got vast re um, responsibilities in terms of interacting with the community, the land, their, their territories, the things that are going on, the mining areas and stuff in their, in, their, in their jurisdictions, they've got huge responsibilities and relatively limited resources. So you've got that conflict there, which you don't have in many other federations. We don't have such activist central governments in most of the, the uh, global federations. So we're a particular brew of, of, um, of conflictual influences, and I think that's getting hard to manage. One of the problems, I think, in the last decade and a half is that we haven't had very good political leadership at the top. Um, it's hard to think in modern recent times of any really good political leaders. Um, you know, we've had some good managers, and you might say Fraser was a reasonably good manager of, of, of the federal government. Uh, John Howard, Bob Hawke, to some extent Paul Keating were, were reasonably good managers. That era has probably gone, and since the, that time we really haven't seen any good manager of the process, even though everybody's come into office, every prime minister's come into office saying they're going to um, strengthen cabinet government and, and manage a, a grown-up adult uh, government. They've all let it slip through their fingers because they're so tempted by all these other 
uh, conflictual influences that uh, we haven't seen good government for, for many years now. Looking back on your career, what are the most memorable experiences and do you have a particular maxim that you would offer to aspiring scholars? Uh, the most inspiring thing for me was really inspiring teachers when I was at university. I had some really great lectures and some really great teachers at, uh, at high school as well. Uh, and that sort of attracted me to, into an educational space. I was always a bit conflicted when I was an undergraduate about whether I wanted to be a political journalist or uh, go, into, go into education and, and teach history or politics, something like that. Uh, the academic side won out, largely because I realised when I went to university that most of the journalists were being employed had already spent two years on a student magazine before they were getting employment in, in the industry, and if you hadn't done that, you really didn't get in. So it was, and there was relatively few uh, people uh, being taken in on that at those days. So uh, I got into academia, and th things like inspiring seminars, inspiring lectures at the university, but one of the things, one of the things I got most enjoyment out of, other than publishing and, write and, and research projects, was uh, supervision, which was a bit unexpected. I started supervising in 1983, a master's student at Canterbury University in New Zealand, and I hadn't got a clue what to do first week, no idea. Uh, and we learned. Uh, his name was Philip Shane, he's still around. And we, uh, we worked out together how we were going to kind of supervise his project. And I was still doing the final year of my PhD. I still hadn't submitted my PhD. Uh, and I learned by looking at who I'd worked with, and people like Doug McKechn, Bob Catley, people like that, Bruce McFarlane, um, Graham Duncan. There was a whole people who've been significant. Bill Brugger at Flinders as well, Dean Jench. There's a whole series of people who were significant for me who I'd learned from, and I tried to put that back. And I think very quickly I became a kind of good supervisor, and I got a lot of enjoyment out of helping mould and shape people's uh, theses. I didn't expect that to be the case. I expected I'd get more enjoyment out of, out of writing, uh, which I do. I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of finishing things and writing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an achievement. You know, it's an output. Uh, if I haven't written something in a month or so, I'm starting to kind of get itchy feeling and think I need to get something out. I need, need to be communicating, need to say something. It doesn't matter whether it's in, in the newspaper. It doesn't matter whether it's in a, a grey literature magazine. It doesn't matter whether it's something for the conversation or it doesn't matter whether it's an academic article or book or chapter or editing. I think all these are, are good contributions. And a maxim? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think I'm not a big believer in maxims. I mean, I've always tried to... Um, be conscientious and work really hard and try and get on top of things so I know what I'm talking about. I think a lot of academics get into areas where they don't know the limitations of their own research and thinking and they make broad generalizations which when you actually start to analyze them um, you know fall, fall apart and I think you know to be a, bit, a little bit cautious a little bit uh, skeptical a little bit questioning you know, speaking truth to power is one of the things that political scientists are, are meant to do. And I think that's, you know, it, it's, it's important. Uh, and what we're talking about is often what our politics is about. You know, we, the, the, the discourse is also part of the, the political environment. And I think it's important to keep participating in that, that it doesn't just get hijacked by certain groups, that other, other voices get in there as well. Professor John Wanner, thank you. Pleasure, Michael. I'd like to thank Wiley Publishing and the editorial team at the Australian Journal of Public Administration for the encouragement to do this podcast. Thank you.